Well, please open your Bibles today to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Every now and then in a sermon series, I like to pause, take a break from the regularly scheduled program. And we've had a lot of instruction talking about um, a a well-ordered church. And I thought it might be an opportunity to go in a different direction today. And so Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, fourth book written by Moses, and we'll begin today in Numbers chapter 21, Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4, <clears throat> and this is God's word. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come now, uh, we come now, really, Lord, this is why we're here, um, to hear from God, to, to meet with God. Through our, as we pray, we do that. As we sing, we do that. As the word is preached, we do that. As we partake of the elements, we do that. God, we want to meet with you today. We want to, as it were, experience the the, the, the presence of God. We want to draw near to you as you draw near to us. We want to be changed by God. We want to see something of your glory. And so, God, we pray that in this time, your spirit would be mightily at work. Lord, I'm a weak man, um, and, and this effort on my own will be, will be unhelpful. And so I pray, God, for a an extra measure of your spirit, God, that you would speak your words to your people as you sovereignly desire to do, and that we might hear, we might receive, and that we might be transformed. I pray, God, if there's any in this room that has yet to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, they might look today upon the one whom was pierced and find life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this section of the wilderness journey of the Israelites, we are at the very tail end of their 40-year travels. And what that means is that they have seen God do many mighty things over these last few decades. They saw Yahweh destroy the mighty Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian army. They saw him rain down hail through the prophet Moses. They saw him fill the land with gnats and fill the land with frogs. They saw him turn the Nile 
into blood. They saw him make the midday as, as dark as the middle of the night. And they saw him destroy all of the firstborn of Egypt. They saw God through Moses part the Red Sea as they walked through the sea, as the waters were laid up as heaps on the sides of them, and then they saw God release that water and destroy those that pursued them, destroy the Egyptians. They saw the theophany, the cloud by day, and the pillar of fire by night, as God's presence was with them in the camp, leading them visibly, I think we've all at one point said, God, if I could just see a visible direction marker, that would, that would be helpful. They saw the mountain where God's presence was with the fire and the thunder and the smoke, and they trembled at the sight and the feeling of the ground shaking. God says, if an animal touches my mountain, I will break out and wrath will pour out from me. They saw God gush Water out of a rock in the middle of a barren wasteland. They have seen many signs and wonders performed by Yahweh, but apparently at this time all of that is not enough because we find them grumbling and we find them complaining and we find them angry with God. I have a simple outline today that's actually a cycle often seen throughout this journey, and that is the people's sin, God's judgment on them, the people's cry, their prayer, the intercession of Moses, and then the grace of God. And we'll loosely follow that outline today. And so we see, firstly, <coughs> the people's sin. The people's sin. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. I think that's an a, a insufficient translation. The, ES, the, excuse me, the KJV says their souls became discouraged. Their souls became discouraged. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now we have to understand what's going on because we're parachuting into a book without a whole lot of context. But in the previous chapter, they've come to Edom. And, and you may remember who the Edomites are. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau, right? And Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. And Jacob and Esau are twin brothers, right? Their father is Isaac. And so these are their kinsfolk in some way. They're related to these people in, 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 in a, a long time ago. And so they come to Edom and they ask passage of the Edomites. We want to come through your land. And the Edomite king is having none of that. And he refuses them passage through their land. Now, we have to understand that it's not our little church coming and saying, hey, can we walk through your yard? We just, we just want to get through. When they leave Egypt, there's maybe two million people wandering in this caravan in the desert. There's 600,000 men of fighting age, plus women and children at that point. And so this is a mass of people 
And they're worried they're going to pluck all of their grain. They're going to take all their resources, drink up their wells. And so he says, if you come through our land, we will bear the sword upon you. And so the Israelites have wandered for 40 years and they can see the land of Canaan. It is there before their eyes. And Moses says, you turn or go in the wrong direction. And again, they turn away from the promised land and go in a different direction by the way of the Arabah, which is a wasteland, which is not a, a fun place to be on foot marching in the heat. So this is the situation that they find themselves in. This is part, at least, of why they're so angry with God, why they're so discouraged. And we see their murmuring. We see their lack of contentment with the Lord here in at least three ways. The first thing we see is that they're not content with God's pace. They're not content with God's pace. These, these folks have traveled and they have wandered. They have often gone in circles. They haven't made much progress in all of these years. <coughs> and it seems that at this point, they're just done. right? They're, they're just done walking. They're, they're done marching. They're done picking up their tents and wandering off to another place and setting everything up again. They are not content with God's unfolding plan for their life. They know what's best, and they're giving God an earful and letting Him know how things ought to be going for them at this time. You know, it's easy to look at the Israelites and say, man, they really didn't understand, did they? But are we not just like the Israelites? Do we too not often complain about how God's plan is unfolding for our life? Do we not often question, God, why did you open this door? And why in the world did you close this door? Why have you brought me here today? And why did you not bring me here? We too can so often lack contentment with God's pace of our life, with, with what he is doing and where he has brought us to and how he works. Not only that, but they're, they're not content with God's place that he today has them. They're not content with the things that they do not have. Look what they say in verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses. This is what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Isn't it, isn't it strange how sin can confuse the mind? All of a sudden, in their murmuring and in their backbiting, Egypt sounds alluring. Egypt sounds attractive. You know the, the place with the whips and all of the brick making, building pyramids, 400 years of slavery. They were there and they were crying out, deliver us, deliver us. And it seemed for centuries that no one heard their cry. But all of a sudden... They're looking back to Egypt as if that was better than what God has done with them and for them these last 40 years. But do we not do the same thing to the Lord? God shows himself faithful in our life time and time again. He delivers us from Egypt, from the 
life that we lived of sin and self. He answers our prayers. And then we question Him. We question how He answers our prayers. Why in this way, God? I wanted it to go like this. I wanted you to put me here or with him or or with her. This is not how I saw things working out. And maybe today you're here and you're, you're, you're questioning God in your heart. Maybe today you're here and you're struggling to have faith because the wilderness that is before you looks grim and looks dark. You saw, like the Israelites maybe, you saw light at the end of the tunnel There was the promised land. There was the place that we've longed to be. There is milk and honey. There is rest. And then God shuts the door. And He moves you in another direction. I want you to hear these words. And these words are not meant to be cliche. or not meant to be just a pat answer to pat you on the back and say, it's all fine. But God has a plan. God had a plan for the Israelites. And God has a plan for us. And when I say a plan, I mean that God is in control. That God has ordained all things whatsoever come to pass. And He works all things for good. For those that love Him and that are called according to His purpose. He doesn't tell us how He works wicked things for good. He doesn't always show us how our suffering and our pain and our loss works for good. But He promises that all of it is for our good. And we have to remember that He's the one that defines good. What does He say there in Romans chapter 8? He says that we have been predestined to the image of His Son. Right? Our good in God's sight is conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. It is our growing in holiness. And God is using everything in our life to make us more like His Son. He never tells us that we get all the answers. He never tells us that He'll explain how all the difficult circumstances will work for good. But He asks one thing, that we trust Him. That we trust His Word. That He is a good, benevolent Father. And so the Israelites are not content with God's pace. They're not content with God's place. And they're also not content with God's provision. They fussed about what they didn't have. And now they're fussing about what they do have. Verse 5. For there is no food. Excuse me. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. How's that for gratitude, right? It's like when you have a small child and prepare them this wonderful meal, and they say, yuck, and they just sort of toss the tray aside. Right? You get a little frustrated. This this worthless food that they're loathing is, is... angelic bread that God has been raining down from heaven, sustaining their life for 40 straight years. And not only that, but he was pleased to give them a double portion every Friday so that they could observe the Sabbath on Saturday, rest and worship him and not worry about collecting food. 
They call it worthless, but it's obviously not. They're being dishonest because it has kept them alive in the wilderness for 40 years. But here they are, tired of the same thing. They haven't settled, so they're unable to grow crops and industry as a normal people would. But God has blessed them for 40 years, given them miraculous manna from heaven. Here they are, grumbling to God. Maybe you too struggle with contentment with the things that God has provided you. Maybe you here today struggle to be content with your lot in life, with what God's providence up until this point has brought you to, has brought you into. Maybe some days in your heart you say, I loathe this worthless job or this loathsome life, this loathsome car that I have to drive. Why me? Why do I have to put up with the things that I have to put up with? Why do I always get treated poorly? Why do I always have to deal with hard things when it seems like they have it so easy? Why am I always sick when they always seem fine? Why does he or she have it so good and I'm trying to be honest and I'm always struggling? It's very easy to focus on what we do not have. Amen? It's very easy to focus on the things that we want. It's very easy to focus on how things have not gone the way we wish that they would. And that's what the Israelites are doing. They're focusing on what they don't have, what they want, and how things haven't gone how they wish they would. But let's think for a minute about what they do have at this time. They have the presence of Yahweh in their midst. Literally, his manifest presence dwells in a tent in their camp with them. And he leads them with a visible sign. They see him do miraculous works time and time again. Not only that, but they are in covenant with this God. They bear the sign of that covenant in their flesh. This same God has delivered them from centuries of slavery and bondage, and they were led out of Pharaoh's kingdom by none other than the creator of heaven and earth. And at this point in history, they are the only nation in the world on the face of the earth that experiences the special presence of the one true God. They are it. They have much to be blessed about, right? But what about us? Let's think about for a minute what we have. We have not a tent in a camp. We have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, the seal of our salvation within us. We have full access to God's Word any moment we want. You want to hear God speak to you? Open up your Bible any time of the day. I think it's easy to think, well, look, they had, a, they had the tent of meeting In their camp, God dwelt there. They could go to Him. One brother says that the tent of meeting should have been called the tent of non-meeting because only one man went in there and only once a year, the rest of the year, the tent was really a picture that man was barred from the presence of God, that man was unable to enter into His glory. His glory was veiled from the camp. And if anyone went in there in their own way, they would fall down dead. 
but we have the presence of God within us. We, church, Christian, you are in covenant with Yahweh, and this new covenant is not like the old. You could be a member of the Abrahamic, of the Mosaic, and of the Davidic covenant and be an unbeliever. But all that are in the new covenant, God says, they will all know me. And he writes his law on our hearts so that we love the things of God and now desire to obey him. And all that are in this covenant, he says, I will forgive their iniquity. The old covenant was a breakable covenant. The new covenant is an unbreakable promise of God because as the author to the Hebrews says, it is built on better promises. You have been delivered, not just from the whip of the Egyptian, but you have been delivered from the bondage and enslavement of sin. And you, church, are the only people in the world that can lay claim to God's special promises. In light of that, what do we have to grumble about? What do we have to moan and to complain about, beloved? But we do, right, in our sin, we do. We find ways. And we see next now the judgment of God. Now in our feelings-driven culture, (coughs) in what is often a feelings-driven church, a feelings-fueled view of God we often have. Someone says something to you, uh, or someone says something that might make you even a little bit uncomfortable about God, and we often hear, yeah, but God is love. As if that attribute of God has to be superior and all the other ones sort of bend to His love. That's not how God is described in the Bible. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is Faithful. He is a simple being. He's not made up of parts. One attribute does not trump the rest of his attributes. And so we read a text like this with our modern sort of feeling-based Christianity, and we're not always sure what to do with it. But in verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, we have to imagine this was a a chaotic scene. The people are grumbling, they're complaining, they're yelling at Moses, they're, they're blaspheming God, speaking against God, and all of a sudden they're running for their lives. Venomous serpents are in the camp. Some of the commentators believe that these fiery serpents could fly. Imagine how frightening that would be because in Isaiah, I don't have the reference here, but in Isaiah it talks about flying fiery serpents. But these serpents are attacking and your loved ones are falling to the ground. And uh, Matthew Henry says that a, a bite from one of, these, one of these snakes would inflame the body, putting it immediately into a high fever and scorching the person with an insatiable thirst. They would heat up and they could not drink enough water and they would overheat, basically, and die. And so God has heard their grumbling. God has heard their blasphemy, and he chastises them. And I think it's worth noting, church, that the death of rebels is not beyond the judgment of God. We see in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church, and they dropped dead in the presence of the apostles. When Paul's giving instructions about the Lord's Supper, 
and talks about the sinful way the church was functioning. He says, this is why some of you have fallen ill and some of you have died. But there's something that we miss here that I think is very important. The book of Deuteronomy is basically a collection of sermons where Moses is is summarizing what has taken place the last 40 years. And look what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verse 15. He says, God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Now notice what Moses says. Apparently, these fiery serpents had been there all along. These scorpions had been there all along. But for these 40 years, God has been preserving his people from their venomous bite. He's been protecting them so that they could walk through this wilderness ripe with these creatures and not be bit. We read elsewhere that their sandals didn't even wear out, God says, over these 40 years. But they've sinned and they've rebelled. And so God removes his hand of restraint upon these serpents. And now they begin to attack. And we see there something of the utter sovereignty of God, that he can restrain even reptiles and then allow them or call them to do his bidding. But I think what we clearly see here is the effects of sin and rebellion against God. Whether that effect, that uh, curse of sin, if you will, is brought on by God as it is here, or just by common consequence of our actions, when men rebel against God, when men complain against His goodness and spurn His mercy, it is deadly. It is deadly. Uh, One man said, sin will take you where you didn't plan to go. It will keep you there longer than you planned to stay. And it will cost you more than you intended to pay. You know, ministering in the past, ministering to men dealing with addiction in my own life experience, but I've seen many, many men, 50, 60, 70 years old that were in high school and thought it would be fun to party with their friends and as old men were still in the clutches of that sin never have found refuge all the years of their life. And we see here that rebellion against God going their own way is costing the Israelites their very lives. Their loved ones are falling down dead around them. And rebellion against God and choosing sin over obedience will always cost us dearly. We don't always get the benefit of seeing it immediately, right? Often it comes down the road when we're farther along in our sin, in our rebellion. But friend, if you're here today and you're, you're stuck in some terrible sin... Maybe today you're, you're up to your shoulders in it and you've lied and it's a secret and, 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 and you've had to cover this sin for so long and you're burdened by it and you have no clue how to get out. You know it's going to hurt those around you when you finally tell the truth, when you finally let it out. Or maybe you're at that initial stage and you're just touching 
and you're just tasting and you're telling yourself, I can handle it. Maybe you're setting images before your eyes that have no place in your mind. Maybe you're just tasting, just touching something that you think will not harm you, that you think you can be okay with God. Maybe you're a young person and you're keeping secrets from your parents, living a double life. There's one response today, friend, for your sin. There's one action for you today if you're living with secret sin. And that is to repent. That is to repent. And I want us to see what the Israelites do because they get this right. They get this right. This is the right response to sin. We hear now the people's cry. Verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So Moses prayed for the people. Now they're seeing before their eyes the immediate stinging effects of their sin. Literally, people are falling down and dying around them. And they're helpless. And they're hopeless to solve their problem themselves, right? It's, it's obvious. And in one sense, this is a grace of God that they see it that fast. But still, they do what is right. So two things about their repentance. Firstly, it is immediate. It is immediate. They see what their sin has wrought, and they go to God immediately in repentance. How often do we fail to do this? How often are we slow to go to the Lord? They see the pain their sin has caused. They see the awful bite of the snake. And instead of more complaining, instead of digging in their heels and shaking their fist at God, instead of forming a coalition, a coalition of snake killers and try to handle the, the, the destruction of their sin on their own, they go to God immediately and they repent and they cry out for help. Instead of thinking that they can do it themselves, they repent to the Lord. Friends, we must do the same. We cannot allow sin to get a foothold in our lives. We cannot allow it to fester. You know, the, the Lord says to not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, in a marriage, when there's a conflict and you let it fester and don't deal with it, or a relationship in the church, when there's, when there's been a hurt or a conflict and it's not dealt with right away, it just festers and begins to, 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 to boil up over. All of a sudden, it, 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 it explodes. Right? God would have us repent, go to Him immediately, and deal with our struggles, deal with our issues. And we see them rightly doing that. They see the effect of their sin and they go to God. And the second thing we see is that their repentance is to God. They acknowledge that they've sinned against God. Now that might seem obvious, but, but we need to see that, right? That all sin ultimately, first and foremost, is sin against God. As David would say when he committed adultery and murdered a man, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we are rude or cruel to our spouse, we are harming an image-bearer of God. 
And if they are a Christian, we are sinning against a blood-bought son or daughter of the king. When we covet and lack contentment, as the Israelites have done, we're sinning against God's wonderful blessings in our lives, essentially saying to him, you and your gifts are not enough for me. I need more. I'm not satisfied with you. And so all sin is against God, and Israel rightly, immediately repents to God for sinning against him and his prophet. And Moses intercedes. We read simply that Moses prays for the people. And Moses at this time acted as something of an intercessor, in a, in similar in a way that Christ does for us. He was not Jesus. But he has a priestly role here, that they go to him and they say, go to God for us. And so Moses intercedes, and now we see now the grace of God. The grace of God, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is a, a strange response from God. Take a stick and put a snake on it. <laughs> Take a stick, make a bronze snake, and put it on the stick. But, but, but look at the grace of God to his people. They've cursed him. They've sinned against him. They've complained about 40 years of him providing and protecting them in the wilderness. They're unthankful. They're ungrateful. But they repent. And God is merciful because that's who he is. And that's what he does. And so God gives them a way to be delivered from this plague. A bronze snake on a pole. Now, it's interesting. You, you, this may be your thing. It's not my thing. But I think it's interesting. There is a, a Greek god, little g, fake god, by the name of, of Asclepius or Asclepius. And his, his, when you see a statue of him, he walks around with a staff, with a snake wrapped around it. And he was the god of healing. The god of healing. And his image is this, has, has stuck with us to this day. The little medical sign you see with the staff, with the snakes, is from this god, Asclepius. Now, this story predates the Greek mythology quite a bit. And I find it interesting that the picture of healing is a staff and a snake. Is it connected to this story? You do the research and figure that out. But I think that's very interesting that this is God's symbol of healing here in this story. A stick with a snake on it. And so, for those of you that have been joining us Wednesday night, we've been studying covenant theology. And a week or two ago, we talked about something called typology. Typology. This is a, a subject that is not often taught in churches, but I think we get the concepts, we just might not know the terms. And so, typology are symbols, types, are symbols in the Old Testament that point to fulfillments, usually in the New Testament. They are people, Moses, 
Joshua. They are places, the promised land, offices, prophet, priest, and king, events, the exodus, the Passover, um, things, the Passover lamb, that point forward to something other and greater than themselves. They're not there by accident. They're there by the ordination of God himself. One, let me give you one example that you're familiar with, whether you understand the type and anti-type language. And that is of the Passover lamb. Right? The Passover lamb, God is bringing his judgment upon the land of Egypt. And the final plague is not just for the Egyptians, it's for everyone. God is going to bring his destroying angel over the land and everyone's firstborn child is going to die. But God gives a way of escape, right? He gives provision. The Passover lamb, they're to take a spotless lamb, kill it, cook it a certain way, eat it a certain way, and put the blood over the doorpost of their home. And so when God's judgment comes over the land, he will pass over those that are covered by the blood of the lamb. They will be spared because they trusted in God's provision for their sin, and he will pass over them and not pour his wrath on them. Does this point us to something in the New Testament? Does this point us to someone in the New Testament? To Christ, right? It's obvious. But Christ is not a lamb. He is other than the lamb, and his, his blood covers in a greater way. He covers us not just from physically dying, but he covers us from eternal wrath, the eternal judgment of God, so that anyone that is, that is under the lamb of God's blood is spared from God's awful eternal judgment because we have trusted in God's provision for our sin. Passover lamb is the type of, Jesus Christ is the anti-type, okay? This brazen serpent is also a type of Christ, and I want to consider that here. One more thing that we talked about was two-tiered typology, and that is that types function on two levels. They mean something in the Old Testament, and they mean something in the New. That's really all we're trying to say. And so what, are they, what is this thing doing here? Let's first consider... In Numbers 21, not what does it point to, but what's happening here? Because it has meaning and it has purpose. And so God tells them, take a bronze snake, put it on a stick, and everyone that looks at it will be healed. So firstly, I think he is humbling his people. First and foremost, constructing a bronze snake is going to take some time. Even if Moses has a commercial forge at his his disposal, which I don't think he does. It's going to take some time to get the metal, to, to fashion it. And so people are dying. They're, they're waiting on God. So they have to wait. They have to trust his timing now. They didn't want to do that. They have to trust his provision now. They didn't want to do that before. And notice what God does. They prayed to Moses, tell God to remove the snakes. Does God remove the snakes? He doesn't. Isn't this how he always works with us? We say, Lord, remove me from this trial. And he says, no, but I'll give you refuge in the midst of the trial. He doesn't remove the snakes. He doesn't remove their poisonous bites. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't stop them. They keep on biting. But over and over and over, the people have to go to God to be healed. 
Over and over and over, they have to humble themselves and look to his method of healing because that will be the only place that they will find refuge. And so he humbles them in their backbiting and their murmuring. Clearly, he's also teaching them to depend upon him and him alone, how much they need him. He shows his people that they have no other hope but him. Right? They have no other way to save themselves. They are at the mercy even of a little snake. That if a little snake bites them, they'll die. Right? He, is, he is teaching them that they must depend upon their God for everything. They need him. Another thing he's doing is teaching them the futility of Egypt. Now I'm leaning on another brother here. This is a quote. The futility of Egypt. Moses, I quote, was to display the bronze serpent, which represented all the fiery serpents in the act of biting the Israelites. He says, not merely on a pole, but on a pike. It was hoisted up, not as a sign of living hope, but as a symbol of the dead Pharaoh and the powerlessness of his serpentine gods. Now, it's not always clear in the text, but every one of the plagues in Egypt destroyed one of the Egyptian gods, showed their powerlessness. And if you look at the statue of King Tut, what does he have on his head? He has a snake right on his face, right on the top of his head. And so he says it was a symbol of the dead Pharaoh and the powerlessness of his serpentine gods. It was God's reminder of the status of the powers of Egypt, those powers to which those that were complaining wanted to return. The gods of Egypt were dead, and those who worshipped them would become like them. Psalm 115.8 In contrast, God, the God of Israel, was the God of the living, and He asserts His superiority over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. Lastly, fourthly, he is teaching his people to have faith. He is teaching them what faith is. What is this for them but a picture of faith in God, a way to exercise faith? Is there medicinal power in a bronze snake on a pole? Was this some sort of, I don't know, essential oil snake on a pole that had miraculous homeopathic healing properties. It was not, right? Nothing happened when they looked upon the snake. But what happened is that they believed God when they looked upon the the snake. They took God at His word that He had provided a way of escape, that God had provided a way for them to be delivered from the judgment of their sin. And so they're looking upon this snake as an act of faith and an act of obedience. And by turning their eyes, once they've been bitten, towards the very thing that they, were, that they were cursed by, they were taking God at His word, trusting in His means of deliverance. There's no power in the statue, in the bronze serpent. There is power in the God of whom they have believed and taken him for his word. As Isaiah 45 says, Look to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth. Now, church, I hope that you can see in all of this healing, all of this gracious blessing of God for these people, there is something far greater that is being pictured in this brazen serpent. God is pointing to something other and something greater than just this event. Just as that bronze serpent was lifted up and all who look to it in faith are healed, so too Jesus Christ was lifted up. And all that feel the sting of pain and their sin would look to that crucified Savior upon that cross and in Him find life. Just as the Israelites had no hope apart from God rescuing them from this plague, so too sinners have no hope apart from God sending us refuge in His Son. And so how do we see this connecting to our Lord? Well, certainly we see it as a picture of man's hopeless condition and need of God's rescue. Man's hopeless condition and need of God's rescue. We find ourselves in a world that is cursed and fallen and broken. I don't have to tell you that. You live in this world, right? We all taste it and experience it every day. Like the fiery bites of the serpent, we experience the fiery darts of our adversary seeking to destroy us. He roams around not like a fiery serpent, but like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And our world is a barren land corrupted by sin. And we as a people have no hope apart from the rescue of God. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, man is in a helpless and hopeless condition apart from divine intervention. We are fallen in Adam, conceived in sin. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. And every intention of the heart of man is evil from his birth. This is what the Bible says about the state of man. We're truly in a hopeless state. We need divine rescue. God must intervene, and He must be the one that provides that which our soul needs, or we will perish. And notice in the the account here, the very thing that brought curse upon them was the very thing that they were to look to. The, the, The cursed thing that they were experiencing death from was what He made them look at. And a question might come to their mind and our mind. How could a cursed thing set people free from its curse? How could a cursed thing set people free from their curse? Well, Jesus had a conversation with a man one night. His name was Nicodemus, and he was the one of the leading Bible scholars of his day. Jesus called him the teacher of the Jews. And he says this to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. John 3, 14 and 15. How could a cursed thing set people free from their curse? Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 
that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As Moses said, cursed is any man who is hanged from a tree. And they had to look upon the thing that cursed them, the thing that they deserved to be set free from its deadly bite. And like that lifted up serpent in the wilderness, God lifted up His Son, that men would look upon His cursed Son and see what their sin had wrought, see what it is that we deserve, beloved. We look upon the One whom was cursed and we see there the just sentence of our sin. Sin brings death to all that have been struck by its sting. And all have felt its deadly sting. And all will perish apart from God's way of escape. Jesus Christ was lifted up before men. He was publicly displayed so that all would see the the devastating result of sin. All would see what they deserve. And all would see the wonderful grace of God in Christ as He hung there as a substitute, as He became a curse for us. So that all that look in faith, all that see their hopeless condition, that they are unable to heal themselves, all that see their own depravity, that they have offended their Creator, all that look to this cross will find life. Because it is there in the cross of Christ that God has made a way of refuge for sinners. It is there in the cross of Christ that all the fallen sons of Adam can find healing from the awful sting of sin and rebellion. Friend, maybe you're here today and you're wondering something the Israelites probably wondered. How can a crucified Jewish man solve my problems of sin and separation from God? Maybe you're like the Israelites wondering, how am I going to look at this statue and find healing? Your charge today is the same charge that was given to them. Look and live. Repent immediately and believe that God has given you a way of refuge. God has given you a way of escape. Flee today, friend, to the cross of Christ and find shelter in the only, the one and only refuge that God has provided for your sin. His is the only covering that you will find for the destruction that your sin will surely bring upon your head. Look to the one whom was pierced and look in faith and look believing that you will be healed and there you will find safety and refuge for eternity for your soul. Beloved, this cross is not only for those that need to be saved. This cross is not only for those that are perishing, but this cross is just as needed for those that are saved. Because His cross is a cross that never fails. 
No matter how many times you sin and you fall and you have to get up your weary head and gaze upon that cross, there you will find the propitiation of your sin. There you will find the love of your Father in His Son. There you will find the grace to persevere another day to serve Him with joy and gladness in your heart. Are you wounded, friend, by temptation in your own failings? Gaze afresh upon the cross of Christ today. When you wish that your faith, your faith was like the other brethren around you, when you doubt your own standing before God, look afresh upon that crucified Lord on your behalf. When you see firsthand the utter depravity of your heart, the hardness of your heart, the sin that clings so close, look afresh to the cross of Christ and there find all the healing that your soul needs. His cross is an effective, effectual cross, beloved. Like the serpent that those Israelites needed, it just takes an act of faith. Praise God that we are not saved by our incredible faith but it is faith of a mustard seed. It is imperfect, sometimes doubting faith that looks to an almighty, powerful Savior and clings ever so tightly to Him and His cross. We are not saved by our own strength. We are not saved by our own work, but we're saved by the work of another, the precious work of our Lord. So, beloved, as that serpent was lifted up for the healing of the Israelites, so was the Son of Man lifted up for sinners, that all that look to Him will surely find life. So as you battle in this fallen, cursed world, you have one source of hope. All others will fail you. Your children that you have your identity wrapped up in, they will let you down. They will fail you at times. Your spouse, that is so dear, we fail one another. The earthly joys, the doctors and all of their pills and all of their strategies to keep you well, they will let you down at some point. But our hope is in Christ, and He is the one that will never let us down. Look to Him and find healing. Let's pray.